We don't want to take for granted the blessings of the missionary and ministry offerings of our musicians. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. I pray put the beauty within us. Save us from ourselves, Lord, and use us to reach the world. Now, Lord, we're asking that your spirit would be here to teach, to impress, to touch. And do for us what only you could do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to start this message by reading from a hymn. You may know it. I don't want you to turn to it. Just listen. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to skies on flowery beds of ease whilst others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to fight? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain supported by thy word. Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer though they die. They see the triumph from afar with face discerning eye. When that illustrious day shall rise and all thy armies shine in robes of victory through the skies, the glories shall be thine. I have to admit, every time I hear that song, I'm touched especially by the second verse that says, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. Why are there so many songs in our hymn book that have this motif of battle? And why do we have a book called The Great Controversy? And what has happened to us in the period of the last few decades, generations maybe, to where somehow we think the journey for us should be different than it was for them? Indeed, it has been. But indeed, it will not stay so. And so, while it would give me great ease to relieve myself from the subject matter of the last month or two, I am duty-bound and compelled to continue while this dynamic of discussion is underway in our larger society and in our church. I've entitled my message this morning, Conviction, Crisis, Love, and Liberty. Let's go ahead and bring that slideshow up if we could. You're going to be looking at the face of an Adventist pioneer. Not a Seventh-day Adventist pioneer, but an Adventist pioneer. You might say one of the earliest of all Adventists. His name is William Miller. I think the artist has done quite an astounding job, and I'm certain this is from that period of his life when the burdens of proclaiming a unique and much maligned message were heavy upon him. Look into his eyes. Look into his face. Now, we know that people in this area did not smile for their pictures. But we also understand that a photo is worth a thousand words. And when you read the visage of this man, you cannot help but sense some measure of weightiness and sorrow. And this morning, I would like to make sure you understand part of the reason why. And I also want to make sure that you understand that you will not be exempted if you plan to go all the way to the pearly gates. You will not be exempted from bearing some of what he bore. 
And what a privilege and a blessing. The song Faith of Our Father says, how sweet would our children's fate be if we like them could die for thee. Now, very few of us are signing up for a rapid entry to the ground. At the same time, do we have anything worth living for that would be worth suffering for? Is there any cause great enough for which we would need to stiffen our spine and stick our face into the wind? I'm appealing to you this morning to understand that the arena of life we've entered in the last few years has caught us off guard. For we've been all right with laws that change the definition of marriage. We were probably somewhat all right with laws that allowed babies to be destroyed in utero. Not in our minds we weren't. And of course, we had great reasons for not engaging society and, and protesting. We didn't want to dirty our hands with messages that might limit our effectiveness to proclaim the gospel, but I fear we've been so sanitized, we've been so distant, that all of a sudden it snuck up on us and now it's affecting us. And for some of us, the price to be paid and the burden to bear seems too great. But I need to disabuse you of what real Christianity has been for most of its history. When you were in the first three centuries, you might lose a limb or lose your life. You might be staring down the foul breath of a feline beast. And in the early days of Adventism, while people weren't losing their life for their religious convictions, they were losing a lot of other things. Miller lost a quiet, good life as a respectable and successful man. And I want to show you some of what was said about him, and I want to assure you today that I am not cherry-picking information. I'm fair to the broad corpus or the larger body of narrative writ that explains what life was like for this man. First of all, you need to understand he was tremendously derided. Millerite humbug, or the raising of the wind. A comedy in five acts, performed with unbounded applause in Boston and other parts of the Union. No, this was not an oddity or a rarity for this man. He bore a heavy burden of leaving the peaceable life of upper state New York, and he walked into the tempest of secular godless criticism, and sometimes religious. Sension robes. $50 offered in almost every place where our ministers give discourses upon the second coming and the necessary preparation for that event. They have to labor against the prejudices of the people caused by reports of the inconsistencies of Adventists, one of which is that at a point of expectation in the past, many of them did prepare robes of white linen. You know, uh, these elements of easy peculiarities or Adventist inconsistencies I want to assure you today, when you work somewhere and you are inconsistent as a principled Christian, you create and throw a burden on somebody else who is principled and consistent. It's either real, and God does provide and deliver and protect and establish and comfort, or it's not very real at all. And the world has no appetite for the unreal version, but they're quite interested in the authentic. And of course, here's the grand ascension of the Miller Tabernacle. Interestingly enough, it looks like somebody on stage has been left behind. But these things were in newspapers and broadsides, and it was not uncommon for Miller to experience large amounts of scorn. Now, there were some who would stand on his behalf, and 
there were some who would not. Mr. Miller has been holding forth on his narrow-minded humbug at Trenton to large audiences. This Miller does not appear to be a knave, but simply a fool, or more properly, a monomaniac. If the Almighty intended to give due notice of the world's destruction, he'd not do it by sending. Now, here we go. I've used the word ad hominem with you a lot, Latin, for against the person. And you're going to see that calling someone fat was a wonderful slur of which Miller being overweight made himself liable. He would do it, not do it, by sending a fat, illiterate old fellow to preach bad grammar and worse sense down in Jersey. Now imagine if you're a 60-year-old farmer and you're reading these things in the newspaper. You need a special trust in Jesus. Certainly, Miller's journey was not about himself. While we are not prepared to subscribe to the doctrine promulgated by this gentleman, this will be a positive quote, we have been surprised at the means made use of by its opponents to put it down. Certainly all who have never heard him lecture or who have read his work must acknowledge that he is a sound reasoner and as such is entitled to a fair argument from those who differ with him. Yet his opposers do not see fit to exert their reasoning powers but content themselves by denouncing the old gentleman as a fanatic, a liar, and a deluded old fool, a speculator, etc. Mr. Miller is and has been for many years a resident of this county and as a citizen, a man and a Christian stands in the highest estimation of all who know him. If only there were that many editors of papers who could write on his behalf, but this was not the world that he lived in. This is a cartoon depicting him and other Millerite preachers as being money-hungry and enjoying the fruits of book-selling, etc., hiding out where the goods are. And then there was a counterpoint, Joshua Himes. Notice what they had to say about him. Elder Himes is a man with a mind in a nutshell, extremely weak in every point of light. We will try to muster charity. Listen to the sarcasm here. We will try to muster charity to believe him sincere. To a sane man, he must be an object of pity. He is as fat, there it is again, as an alderman, and lives like a prince. We're informed that he boards at the Astor House, where his food is from $2 to $5 a day, according to how great a shine one makes. Obviously, they thought he was making lots of money. The record states that he was never a resident at the Astor House and did not eat there. But I want you to see now, most of you are not aware that in Signs of the Times, there was the need to create a new department. It was called the Liars Department. And all liars shall have their part in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's a biblical quote. The Times seems to demand that it's the Signs of the Times, a new department in our prayer. The spirit of lying is so prevalent, especially among many of the conductors of the public press, that we shall hereafter devote a portion of our sheet to chronicle the deeds of our opponents, notice these next few words, who have no arguments to urge against the truth, but lying, that would be more about facts, but the second is about method, scoffing. Well, let's look at just a few more. But we'll start with a modern one. You know, over the last few weeks, we've addressed the issue of, of mandating medical procedures. This one here was actually posted on a Facebook post I've, out of courtesy to the individuals that posted it and those that left it there, uh, these are two very educated individuals. And it would have been in better Christian demeanor to remove this, but it was left and passed on to me. I'm not on Facebook. 
So fortunately, I don't have to deal with all the anonymous shots out of the dark, and it wouldn't be wise for me to try to do that anyway. Uh, there's not a lot of merit in trying to change minds in some respects. So it's somebody's post with more education than probably 90% of us, and it's somebody's uh, blog spot or Facebook blog. The transfers of memberships from the blank to the Village SDA Church, which has long been an epicenter of Seventh-day Adventist crack pottery, are undergirded at least impartial by a sense of feeling that mainline SDA institutions have become Babylon. Now, when I first read this, I was appalled. And fortunately, I had some good friends that kind of helped me see it in a slightly different light. But since I know whose post it is, and I at least know of the person who did the posting, I was more than just a tad bit disappointed that it lay, stayed there long enough for it to be passed on to me. But I don't mind looking at it. Let's go to the next one. Not only Adventist crack pottery, I think we need to think about what you have to do when you can't deal effectively with people of varying ideas. It says there's a lot of dumb money in our faith community. And by the way, folks, these are people who have very high-level degrees, okay? These are not just people with no culture, uncouth, spouting off. These are two people that if I unblack their names, many of you would recognize them. This is a lot of dumb money in our faith community. Grifters compete for it. I'm told that a lot of money is pouring into the Village SDA Church as a result of its anti-vaccine stance. For the record, for maybe the umpteenth time, we do not have an anti-vaccine stance. What we have is an anti-coercion stance. I'm, the barbarians are at the gate. We need to be proactive in trying to figure out what the next issue might be that Ron Kelly, I didn't unblack, I didn't black these names, Ron Kelly, Conrad Vine, Ramna, and all other like-minded agitators in that church down the road will seek the demagogue. And then we need to act accordingly. Now this last one's another pretty slick slur. These are clever people, not learned, of course, but clever. And then someone that I consider friend, at least some level, and I've blacked out his name to protect him, who I think was actually poking at this individual, basically saying, maybe you ought to throttle it back a little bit. He says, don't hold back. I sense you have something to say, smiley face. Now, just so you know, my emotional posture towards this um, post has changed over time and I'm going to show you partially why my disappointment is nonetheless and if I was publishing a paper I might need to have a liar's department to deal with the lying and the scoffing that must be what people are reduced to when they don't like what somebody says but I am here to tell you today Christian dignity expects a whole lot more of people and if you want to know what truth is, start looking for the spirit of truth because the spirit of truth will preempt someone from behaving like this. And when you have the spirit of truth, you can disagree with an idea without lambasting individuals or demeaning or deriding or whatever else you think is okay for you to do in the name of your supposed posture and understanding. So let's just go ahead and look at this. And by the way, now, when I need a good laugh, I like to read the line that says the barbarians are at the gate. Um, if we're that successful to where everything's about to implode because the barbarians are taking over, maybe it's a backhanded compliment. I'm not sure. Now, three people commenting on Miller's life. 
This is the founder of the Disciples of Christ who did not uh, uh, accept Miller's doctrine. But this is what he said. If Noah, Daniel, and Job had reappeared in the person of friend Miller, they would have been derided, slandered, misrepresented, and denounced as disturbers of the peace of this world's giddy dance, just as Mr. Miller at his party has been. Okay, interesting. It gets a little better. This is from the Pittsburgh Gazette. And most of these get mainly intensified in the early 1840s. The truth is, as we apprehended, that many of those who are so indecorous and vituperative in their denunciation of Miller are in fearful trepidation, lest the day being so near at hand should overtake them unawares, and hence like cowardly boys in the dark, they make a great noise by way of keeping of their courage and to frighten away the bugbearers. And one last one, and this is the one I like the best. It says, the most conclusive argument that I've ever seen in favor of the soundness of Mr. Miller's theory is the bitterness with which it is assailed, it is assailed by a benighted and corrupt priesthood. Now, there's two groups that assail it, a benighted and corrupt priesthood, so that's the church, and then the scoffs and the cheers which it elicits from the profane rabble. Two groups, I don't want you to miss that. Opposition from such sources is, us is usually, or usually affords strong corroborative proof of the excellence of the cause or doctrine which is held up to condemnation. And then I want to come to this quote from Ellen White. All who have not the spirit of truth will unite under the leadership of satanic agencies, but they are to be kept under control till the time shall come for the great battle of Armageddon. Now, I want to challenge everybody here. When, my, when some of my children were in their less mature years, uh, they would go to describing somebody with whom they disagreed, and they'd, they'd get kind of this pompous, changed voice, and then they said, la, 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 la. And whenever they did it, it was just so repulsive to me. And I confronted them on it. Because the actual doing of it is the ruination of the person doing it. Whether or not you factor in the ruination of the, of the, um, the tainting of the other person's view. The spirit of truth need not resort to the spirit of evil to defend itself. And when it comes to an argument, the weaker the argument, the stronger must be the ad hominem from the other side. So if you should find yourself in a position, whether it's dialoguing or disagreeing with a spouse, a child, a coworker, a church member, a fellow employee. The Bible says calmness lays great errors to rest. That's the New International Version of Ecclesiastes 10.3. Calmness lays great errors to rest. And while there are moments in which we ought to be stirred, and this for me is one, I want to remind you uh, that there is an element of Christian discourse that makes one credible. I'm holding in my hands a book entitled Dignity. The Essential Role It Plays in Resolving Conflicts. It's done by Adana Hicks, Ph.D., published by Yale University Press. This woman gave counsel and direction for certain American uh, political counterparts in dealing with and brokering peace in the Middle East. When you deal with a honor culture and you violate the componentry of respect and dignity, you are done before you start. But I want you to understand that it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, the fastest way to be heard is to show respect to the other side, even if you think they are the most foolish and knave-like of all human beings. 
Because there will be no changing of mind to someone that you put in the posture of insecurity and shame. So let it be known amongst those that follow the way of Jesus that there were tears in his voice when he enunciated the woes of Matthew chapter 23. And that while Jesus was sharpener of iron, Jesus was also tender and kind. And so this morning, as we look at a situation in Scripture in which conscience or conviction creates crisis, and then we look at what that love and liberty that motivate and shape the future behold, let us understand there's nothing new under the sun. Open your Bibles to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. When we look at this Old Testament book, I'm not sure, but I'm quite confident that there is no story in the Bible that chapter for chapter or pound for pound has more stress than the story of Esther. Esther is not of one primary protagonist, but of probably two or three. And I want you to see some very interesting things about this story right from the very beginning. So we'll start in chapter one. There is an amazing feast that will last half a year long. And in the first seven days, the wine is flowing like rivers. It says in verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The, king, the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion. Very interesting start to this story of extreme compulsion. For so the king had given orders to each official in his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. The drinking, which is not mandatory, although in those days what the king thought, you thought. The drinking, interestingly enough, is not a mandatory component of an enlightened society. Go over to verse 17. Now we have the issue of Vashti, and I don't want to spend a lot of time. But Vashti is a woman who's not inebriated and understands respect in a marital relationship. Vashti is a heroine of this every bit as much as Esther. Only Vashti pays much more for her stiffness of spine than Esther does. Vashti is defrocked, dethroned, taken out of the harem, never seen by the king again. And all of the king's men, probably still in a state of inebriation at some level, and certainly wounded in pride, for this woman has stood up to all of these dozens of men. The men are now insecure and afraid. Verse 17, and they write a law, and it's important, they say, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the other women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying. And so King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to his presence, but she did not come. This day, verse 18, the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. I want to assure you that in the annals of heaven, you're going to read about myriad hundreds and thousands of women who were nerved by this lady who paid the not the ultimate price because she was allowed to live but she lost all status all privilege all position and yet she was a true initial heroine heroine of this story we go down to chapter 2 verse 1 it says after these things when the anger of king ahasuerus had subsided he remembered vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. 
Lest you're in doubt about that, modern commentaries and commentators are limited on what they can tell you about this story, but I can assure you the spirit of prophecy makes it very clear that the king knew he made a mistake. And while his pride would not allow him to reinstate her, he knew he was the dummy. And unfortunately, she was the punching bag. If you think in your journey of following Jesus, you're going to avoid the pain and the persecution described in the Sermon on the Mount, when all men make fun of you, mock you, deride you for my name's sake, you need to think again. And if you think it's all being saved up for you to act on when you are gray-haired and aged in your Christian experience, you need to think again. There are chapters that are being laid out for you today, architected and engineered specifically for where you are in your faith journey so that you can get just a little bit stronger and when your Vashti moment comes, you're willing to pay the price. Many of us would rather be Esther at some level, but Esther does not have what Vashti has. Vashti is probably an older woman who's faced off with smaller chapters. Esther has to work her way into it, praise the Lord, for a cousin by the name of Mordecai. When she's finally in the lineup to be potentially chosen, she's getting some advice, chapter 2, verse 10. Mordecai directs her. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. In other words, it was a prejudicial environment. Bigotry did exist, and she was told to just keep her head down. Now, there is a man in this story who is also completely underrated, but who is also the cause of bigger problems. Chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtham and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guard the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. What you need to understand is that Mordecai had some status, and he was a man of good judgment. When Mordecai laments at Haman's law being signed by the king's ring, we'll see that Mordecai will lament loudly in the street, but he won't go to the king's gate because the Bible says it's against the law for him to be mourning inside the king's gate. But Mordecai does have some convictions, and even though his name has been brought before the king, he is willing to risk some things. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. When you think Agagite, you need to think Saul, who did not kill King Agag, who was an Amalekite. This is a direct descendant of that person. It's the one Samuel had to destroy because Saul wouldn't do it. And you need to remember when you think Amalekite, these are the brave souls who came out and killed the old people and the cripples at the back of the Exodus tribe. Yes, not very quality individuals, to say the least. And it appears that there's been no real improvement on the character of the progenitors thus far. Verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for he was the, for the king and commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. And thus we have the setup for a story of potential genocide. Now, I want you to think about this. If I was giving the book of Esther a stress factor rating, I'd put it at about a nine and maybe higher. And if you think that somehow, especially since this is one of the last chapters of Israelite history before the appearing of the advent, 
You should suspect that as we move closer to the Advent, the second one that is, that we might have some warm-ups too. And it might be imperative that wherever you're at, whether it's in a job or a school or a home, that you learn how to trust Jesus and do what all the godly men and women through time have done, at least tried to do, and that is be the person you're supposed to be for the witness you're supposed to be so light can shine in dark places. Verse 3, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now, to the credit of all those around Mordecai, they went to him first before they went to the king. So there is some measure of culture in this bunch that appears to be missing in much of the Christian church today. And by the way, should somebody send you a snarky, sarcastic, scoffing email, don't answer them. Call them up and ask to talk with them and show them that you're not afraid to dialogue in person like the Bible says. And instead of lobbing things from the recesses of your little home with the computer screen or your big home with the computer screen and all the distance and protection that's afforded you in that venue, don't make the mistake of solving your problems in writing when they need Christian culture, kindness, and courage. So to their benefit, they talk to him and say, you're going to get in trouble. Verse 4, now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Now you need to understand, this book, which never mentions the name God in it ever, has some pretty godlike characters in it. But we don't ever get a real delineation. We don't get this real explicit why Mordecai wouldn't bow down. Abraham bowed down. Jacob bowed down. We have at least four times in the book of Genesis that the leaders of the nation of Israel bowed down in the presence of pagan kings. So why won't, why won't Mordecai bow down? There obviously has to be something more going on than just basic homage to a man of position. And the spirit of prophecy is quite clear that what Naaman was looking for was reverential worship. And for this, Mordecai would not bend the knee. But it's going to create quite a problem, for Mordecai could never imagine in a million years that more than he would pay the price for his refusal to obey the king. And it's not that Haman's sufficiently glad with extinguishing the breath of Mordecai. Haman wants to extinguish the breath of all who take their lineage from Abraham. And so the whole nation's going to perish. And if you hadn't gone back to Israel by now, because this is post-exilic, that means after the Babylonians came, we're dealing with a time period after that. Being back in Israel right then would be a really good place to be. But for all those who lingered behind, it's a difficult day. Unless you think that all of those Jews are of one mindset and they think that Mordecai is a great hero, you might need to think again. For the spectrum of Judaism is no different than the spectrum of supposed Christianity where some are really glad to make sure you know they're not pleased with what you've done. And how dare you embarrass us? And worse than that, how dare you threaten our lives and the lives of our children and our substance? For indeed, Mordecai makes himself the original hinge for all the heartache of the greatest degree that had ever in the history of Israel come to the nation. That's what he's done. Why did he do it? 
And now I want to talk, I've talked about conviction and I've talked about crisis. I want to talk about love for just a minute. What did Jesus say? He who loves father or mother more than me is not what? Not worthy of me. Why would Jesus so define gospel truth relationally as to create a wedge, a sword in your hand, as it were, between you and the ones you love the most? That's because human beings are not very good at defining love. I can remember even as a very young man in my internship, the first time I had to deal with dysfunction in its most painful dynamics, an alcoholic man, a dysfunctional codependent wife, and children suffering, the whole family dynamic in dysfunction and compromise. I can remember talking with the wife, but she would not do anything. There was not going to be an intervention. There was not going to be a speed bump. There was not going to be a flashing yellow or red light in this man's life. And consequently, he was going to march on and drag down the entire family system. Yes, Vashti and Esther are the real heroes of this story. We won't leave Mordecai out, but we need to understand something. It's not your gender that makes you brave. It's your relationship to Jesus Christ and the confidence you have in what he can and will do and that you're in his will and it's not about you. This is where the story is. And when people have no real sense of where the starting definition of love is, you can be sure they're going to lead their family, best intentions, they're going to lead it off the rails. Because defining love right starts with letting God be Lord of all things. And He defines what is love. And in this case, when the story's all said and done, not will Mordecai only have become a hero, not only will he have taken Haman's place, not only will he go down in the annals of faith history, Mordecai will have enriched the Jews, strengthened their entire faith, started, as it were, a, a, a Jewish fellow, fellow celebration called Purim, which is celebrated yet to this day. He will have shown everyone that God is still with those that are left behind in the, in the arena of the Medes and the Persians, not just those that are back in Israel. Love. There are some who'd like to suggest that those who elect not to endure forced medical procedures are acting out of fear. What I'd like to ask is, what do the people who just go along with it have to lose? And for what I found in dealing with the individuals on this subject matter, of which there are several, physical therapists, counselors, nurses, different people that are sending me letters. I'm going to show you one before the sermon's all over. People actually getting ready to say goodbye to their job. Even though the exclusion law in Michigan, as one administrator told me, is as big as a barn door. Now, when I grew up, we had an expression, you couldn't see the side of a barn if it was falling on you. When someone who knows tells me that the medical exemptions in Michigan are as large as a barn door, what that says to me is, there should be no medical worker who can't get an exemption if they have a personal conscientious conviction about this thing. But I'm going to show you a letter, two letters, and I'll black the names out, already done that, of a person that's gone through this thing at least two times now. And if it wasn't for the Liberty Council and some direction on how to go, she'd be right now just wringing her hands. Another brave woman. Love is not something that is a feeling only. Love is a choice. And when a person makes a decision to put God first and not take the path of pragmatism or convenience or efficiency or ease, 
There are people listening to me right now who are losing privileges and opportunities in their God-given, God-ordained, and God-called job description because they have convictions they're not willing to surrender, and it's costing them, and they're not medical employees. And what's worse is the limitation comes from people who should know better. When we look at the life, we see a person who either develops in small stages strength for bigger tests, or we don't. Haman is filled with rage. And if we think, looking at chapter 3, verse 6, that it's an idle threat, let's look at that. It says, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. So the secret's out, at least about Mordecai. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who throughout the whole kingdom of, were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Our Bible commentary tells us that 50 years before this moment, one of the Dariuses had destroyed all the Magi. It's no idle threat. 50 years before that, the Scythians had been virtually annihilated. This is something that actually happens. And we know that Mordecai is not a man just totally without judgment. He's not a rabble-rouser. But he's decided with his own understanding where the lines are drawn about what he will and won't do inside the king's court. But I want you to notice something you may not have noticed before. Chapter 4, verse 4. How does this affect Esther? I like how the New American Standard says this. It says, Then Esther's maidens, because she's hearing about Mordecai and sackcloth and ashes and crying out everywhere except in the king's gate, she hears about it, and the story is dispatched to her. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and Queen Esther writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been so afraid that your knees knock. Most of us have been. I don't know if you've ever been so afraid that you wring your hands and put your face in your hands. I want to tell you, friends, when you're afraid, go find a private place, get down on your knees, and start talking to the God of the universe. This is where the solutions are found. God still sits enthroned above the circle of the world. He still speaks, and the elements act. But there's a moment of growth here for Esther. She's not at the place she's going to be when this is all said and done. And Mordecai sends and tells her what's up. And then he says, listen, our little secret won't forever be a secret, and you're not going to be exempted from this either. And who knows, he says, but that maybe you were put there just for this moment. Wow. He lands a warning and a rebuke and a call to come up higher, all in one short little speech. But she is stressed out, and she is so stressed that she doesn't know what to do. But the journey of understanding comes to her as she contemplates the destiny of her people. Love is a great motivator to take risk. And those who love little risk little. But those who risk much usually have found confidence in God and love some cause or person or God and are able and willing to do it. Three days of praying. This is the request. Verse 15 of chapter 4. Then Esther told them in reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. 
I and my maidens will also fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. We read these stories to our children before they go to bed. We know how they turn out. There's no stress for us. I could wish that every single person listening to me here today was in danger of losing their job. Not for the well-being financially of your home. Not for the well-being of this church. But just for the weightiness of those few who listen online or in person who actually might have a few hand-wringing moments. I should wish that everybody here could understand it costs Jesus something for us to have our liberty and it will cost us something to follow the man who paid the price. But it will never be more than he knows we're able to bear and it will always be designed to be a blessing to us or somebody else. It all flows through his hands. Yes, I could wish that every person that makes a decision regarding the moments in time we're in could be in a position where some kind of significant loss and the right to a livelihood is a significant loss, especially if you have kids in church school, especially if you owe on your house, especially if you owe on your car. It's losing everything, almost. It would be well for each of us to consider if our governmental check or our employer check might be the last one, how would it affect me? Three days of pray, courage comes. This lady comes up with an awesome plan. I mean, she takes full advantage. The Bible says she's beautiful of face and form. And she takes full advantage. She appears before the king, I'm sure in confidence, willing to die because others are going to die if she doesn't do anything. And when the king holds out the scepter, she has the most amazing plan that takes advantage of the most wise womanly wisdom. And by the way, when David needs a, a, a lot of wisdom, actually, I'm thinking of Joab, when he wants to really get to King David's heart, he finds a woman to arrange a reconnecting between David and Absalom. She tells the story. She plays it out. It is a woman that's described in the book of Proverbs who is wisdom incarnate that's calling in the streets. Ladies, listen to me. You need to remember what Peter says in his book when he says you need to be like Sarah and not be afraid. Check it out. But this is where we're at in time. And I want to remind you that people like John Bunyan stayed in the Bedford jail, not because he couldn't get out, but because his wife said to him, if getting out means compromising, stand your ground. When it comes to this story, we find out that after two potential meetings, Esther opens the door on the evil in Haman's heart, and the king is so distraught by it that he himself has been drugged into this evil that he walks out into the garden, and when he comes back, he finds Haman way too close to the physical body of the queen, and it just goes from bad to worse, except for one thing. It went from worse to amazing deliverance because of a beautiful, godly, prayerful woman. You see, whenever you act on your convictions, you will create a crisis somewhere in some realm, little it may be. And your failure to act on your convictions will turn you into a atrophied, in other words, unexercised spiritual body. 
which has no strength to stand up to the issues of the day, no light, no conservative agent like salt to shape and remake and beautify. And what starts out rough ends up beautiful because someone actually does have a conviction. It does lead to a crisis. And because God comes first in their life, there is a awesome chapter of faith that's going to be written and it's going to prepare you for what's coming in the future. And for us, we need a little preparation because we've been sitting on easy street as Christians. And this is not good. Must I be carried to heaven on flowery beds of ease? Are there no bloody seas for me to travel through? This is where we're at. Now I want you to turn over to the book of Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. I want you to see it. I want you to read it. Matthew chapter 10. I don't want you just to hear it. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And don't forget this, any of you that are suffering at this moment. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Amen and amen. Now I'm going to do something that's a little bit difficult, but we're going to do it. I'd like for my slides to move. The clicker doesn't seem to be doing it. All right, let's go back. I'd put up on the screen one of the rejection letters for one of our members. I don't want you to really read it. I just want you to see this is the second letter they got. And knowing that the exclusion for personal conscientious conviction is as wide as a barn door, I was very, very surprised that on the second engagement, we get legalese. And the basic legalese is that we've decided that not accommodating you meets our de minimis burden upon our organization, which means, in other words, the threshold of trouble that you're going to cause us is not equal to, of course, they didn't say this, it's not equal to all the risk you took last year. And in this person's case, they actually got COVID. So during the past year, this person actually got COVID serving sick people. But when they want an exemption, they're told no more than once, now to the point in time where they need a lawyer. Now, this is exceptionally problematic. It's not how fair-functioning societies, organizations, or families work. Those who take the biggest risk should be afforded the largest latitude. And this is not happening in this situation, but I want you to see, once they go legalese, you know they're anteing up, and they're basically saying, leave us alone. But the thing that bothered me the most about this was that upon submitting the first request, what came back was a basic misunderstanding of how the Michigan law works. But what bothered me even more was what's circled in red here. It wasn't just enough that they said no. It wasn't just enough to say that you didn't do a good enough job establishing a religious basis for your exemption. It's that they placed a web link, a tiny URL, to the position of the Seventh-day Adventist Church regarding these vaccines. Now, I think that's a little bit of a problem. I'm going to tell you why. Because these vaccines were in nobody's mind when the current position in the Seventh-day Adventist Church was written. These vaccines have come to market quickly. 
They weren't tested in the broadest sense as they should have been. If you're a pregnant woman, you should never take these. They were never tested on a pregnant woman. Just plain old fact. And when it says these vaccines, and it's quoting back the posture of the church, which is not a doctrine or a dogma, just a, a policy, we're now unwilling as a church to write letters of support for these people on church letterhead. But the employers can go to our websites and pair it back to their employees with the supposed strong arm of the church why they're not granting the exemption. Now, this is exceptionally problematic. Now, if you're listening to me and you're not in potential loss of your job, this doesn't seem quite so serious to you. Except for one thing, that no man is an island. No man stands alone. John Doan, in his poem, recognized that there was a corporate, and if we want to talk about community sense of responsibility, these individuals who took care of us and our loved ones when they were sick and got sick in the process ought not to be hammered away from their fingers on the job because they can go to a website and take down a, a posture that we have, not a doctrine, and tell them, and by the way, you don't know how your church really stands on this anyway. It's not about the church. And for anybody that's looking to get an exemption, it is a personal religious exemption. This is problematic on a couple levels. Christian behavior, fundamental belief number 22 says, it means that because our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, we are to care for them intelligently. That's a function of agency. You get to decide what intelligent is. The church doesn't decide for you what intelligent is. And I want to go one step farther. Adamus Review, December 18, 2020, we reiterate, the decision to be immunized or not is the choice of each individual and should be taken in consultation with one's health care provider. Personal research on the subject is important. I cannot reiterate that enough. We ultimately rely on following biblical health practices and the spirit of prophecy and following God's leading in our lives, which will bring us peace and assurance in our decision-making. But these words right here, we reiterate, the decision to be immunized or not is the choice of each individual. Those are very important words because they were written in regards to the pandemic we're in right now. It is imperative that our religious liberty establishment recognize how church posturing is being used to deprive people of the right of livelihood. And instead of not writing on church letterhead, church letterhead ought to include that we believe that people make intelligent decisions, and if they make one contrary to their organization, we do support that, even though we have general support for vaccines in general. This is a difficult day for our church. I started with the song I started with on pur purpose because many of you would like to come to church and let me share some wonderful, sweet little devotional stories and you walk out of here and you feel really good. Pastor Ron lifted up Jesus. I want to tell you, Jesus was a defender of the defenseless. And Jesus went to the cross because he crossed Judas at Simon's house when he was complaining about 300 denarii of perfume and he said, leave her alone. She has done a good thing. And he left that room and he went straight to the high priest and he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I'm not in threat of losing my job. 
I was at Wachita Hills last two Sabbaths ago. I was in the Boundary Waters a Sabbath ago. I think some people wondered when I wasn't in the pulpit for the last two weeks if I was in trouble. No, I work for an excellent organization. And most in my organization still believe in free speech and free choice. But recalibrating that is a bit difficult. And if you think I'm out of bounds, I just want you to know, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that Paul confronted Peter to his face in front of the whole church because he started Judaizing when all the bigwigs came from Jerusalem. Oh, there was quite an audience there. And did Paul do himself any favors? No. But did he do the church some favors? You bet he did. Now, a sweet spirit. Love and prayer. I want you to understand something. I've preached more sermons probably in this church about the church the one object, enfeeble and defective as it may be, it is the one object of Christ's supreme regard. I've dedicated my life to this organization, and it is a wonderful, wonderful organization. I love my Michigan Conference. I love my Lake Union Conference. I love my North American Division, and I love my General Conference. Could somebody say amen? amen. Thank you. But there are times when recalibration has to go on. And does it cost everybody something? Yes. It hasn't cost me anything yet. It might. I don't really expect it to. And yes, it does strengthen me just a little bit. Oh, it's cost me some friends' opinions. I've had some of you tell me. Move on. I respect you, but I pray my way into this pulpit. Now, I'm going to end with a story that isn't too wonderful. Two stories, very briefly. The first one is about a 31-year-old Methodist preacher. You need to understand that in 1843, the churches were bleeding members to the Millerite movement. And in 1843, the scorn and derision had gone beyond words to now it was heresy trials. And there was a 31-year-old minister by the name of Levi Stockman. He was dying of tuberculosis. He had a wife and children. He had a heresy hearing also because he just happened to believe that Millerite, the Millerites were onto something. So they convene amongst the Methodists, the Episcopal Methodists in Bath, Maine, they convene a heresy hearing for Levi Stockman, 31 years old, married with young children. And this is what he says. He asked them to explain to him how belief at his heresy trial, he asked to be shown how his belief in the second advent differed from the Methodist doctrine. The church refused. But they did tell him that if he did not recant his belief in the Second Advent Doctrine, that his family would be cut off from the funds set up for deceased Methodist ministers. Do you know what Social Security is? Do you know when it came into being? A hundred years plus after this. So Mr. Stockman, Pastor Stockman, you either recant of this concept of the second coming 
And of course, the next little bit wasn't said. Or you in your tuberculosis-ridden, emaciating body ought to expect that your wife and their children will be in the poorhouse. Stockman stood firm. He died a few months later and he's buried in an unmarked grave. Are you going to sail to heaven on flowery clouds of ease? Or do you think you might have to pay a price someday, somehow, some way? The most compulsed person was the most compelled person. His name was Jesus. With one look, with two words, he could have turned it all upside down. All he needed to say was, save me. Save me. And the night of woe that would have settled on this earth would have been darker than anyone could imagine. Compelled by love, compulsed by his creation. Listen, friends. Real love is what a person needs to love God first and live according to their conscience. And those that are doing that and are getting letters like the one I put up on the screen, they're not afraid. They're actually some of the bravest people I know. And I know this, God's going to take care of them. I actually had somebody in the first service text me between the services and said, is there a COVID-19 fund? Not such a bad idea. Not sure we need it yet. Let's keep praying for these unnamed people. On both sides, let's keep praying for the authors of Barbarians at the Gate and Crack Pottery at Village Church and Clever But Not Learned. Let's remember there was a liar's department in the signs of the time. And let's remember what the spirit of truth is. It's Jesus hanging on a cross. Suffering, suffering, and we're going to suffer some too. Don't give up. Don't become arrogant, proud, and unruly. May the spirit of truth mark your life with a dignity that can't be ignored. And may we be respectable, cooperative citizens. But we, may we never let people get the edge up on us by trying to twist the narrative to somehow suggest fear is running amok among those who have conscientious conviction. The fear might be running amok with those who are riding the cesspool to perdition amongst the masses. Strong words, but it might be true. Everybody's going to have to decide. In the meantime, I want you to know something. Jesus himself was the ultimate conscientious objector. He created the ultimate crisis. He loved us enough to go through with it. And he himself stamped liberty on your soul. Amen.